0: Fieldcrest towards Quanton, um, uh, I'm around i was driving down Quanton, and turn around and see if I can find him again. This is that
1: Glover, subject 10 I'm going I'm going to see NCJA 1014. That. 10 every 10-1, have you do 10-4, so
0: 11 12 NCJA
1: 1014.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of NCJA 1014. I'm your host, Kirk Pocket. I'm pleased to welcome Billy West, who is the District Attorney of Cumberland County and a sitting member of the State's Commission on Human Trafficking. Also on today's panel are two of Cumberland's Assistant District Attorneys, Lindsey Lane and Rob Thompson. I'd like to welcome all of you, and thank you so much for your time. I know this is going to be a very informative episode, so welcome. Thank you for having us, Kirk. Well, Lindsay, I'd like to bring you in to talk about a a different element, and certainly your colleague has set a very high bar, but we talk a lot about the sex trafficking end of it and folks being held in servitude. The other portion that we talked about earlier is in labor trafficking. Could you talk a little bit about that, maybe share an example of a case that you may have worked where labor trafficking was involved?
2: Sure. Um, So when people think about labor trafficking, I think the thing that comes to mind is working without being paid. Um, And that is, it narrows down to basically um, that, but there's so much more to it. It's a lot more complex. You'll see across the state of North Carolina um, that we'll have issues that pop up in more rural areas that will involve involve migrant workers who are being held in really horrendous conditions, um, their visas or their Um, Passports may be held by those traffickers. Um, We do have occasionally some of those investigations that come through Fayetteville. I can think of one where we did have um, some issues with some persons that were working in a restaurant where their visas were being held um, and they were being trafficked. Um, When they began to object, of course, there were threats of repercussions for that, and specifically deportation. Um, But what we see most commonly in Cumberland County is something that doesn't really come to a lot of people's mind, and that is our illicit massage businesses. I get questions a lot throughout the community about, well, you know, how do I recognize this? What do those look like? Um, Sometimes they're just hidden in plain sight, and we have uh, a problem with some of those businesses that will pop up, and you'll see that their hours are very irregular. Um, specifically the ones we have investigated. um, They've stretched across our city and our county. They have very odd business hours. Um, We have sent officers undercover to those locations and we'll find that there are multiple persons of typically international descent, particularly from the Asian countries um, that are being uh, employed in those locations. We'll find that they're not properly licensed massage parlors. They're not properly licensed. They don't have business permits Um, When we begin further investigation, what what we have found is that sometimes those employees are living there in that commercial space um, in pretty deplorable conditions, um, and they're obviously not likely being paid properly. Um, That's where it gets a little tricky. And those become more of a hybrid case, um, because what we often find is those are also offering sexual services in exchange for money. So it becomes a hybrid of a sexual and a labor trafficking case. Uh, One particularly that we worked last year was a rather large operation. We had some help from our um, state, the SBI, um, and some federal counterparts. It did stretch into other counties, Um, including uh, Raleigh and Winston-Salem, was that we had a ring of women that were being brought down from Flushing, New York. Um, Their visas were being kept, we assume, in New York. That's what they were told. That's what they disclosed to us. We never saw any of their paperwork directly on their person or in the location. They would come to Fayetteville. They would work for a period of time, and then they would be rotated to another location. Our theory on that is those women are often rotated um, because we don't want them, the traffickers don't want them building relationships with persons in this area. At that point, they may become comfortable and disclose, hey, I'm being held against my will. It's a really interesting situation because you're dealing with a person who is being trafficked, but they also desperately want to remain in the United States, so they're very hesitant to cooperate with law enforcement. Their trafficker has typically ingrained in their mind, if you talk to law enforcement, the police are the bad guys, They're gonna ship you back to your home country. Um, You know, you're gonna lose Everything you have here, do not cooperate. And we also face a tremendous barrier in language barriers. Most of those persons speak uh, Mandarin, which not many people in our area do. So that took some um, some hard work on our law enforcement part and our service providers to locate translators for us to investigate that. So that starts as as labor trafficking. It kind of merged into some sex trafficking. Um, and the way we investigated that is we treated it as if it were any other kind of white collar crime. We looked at the financials. We looked at bank records. Um, we looked at leases, um, car titles, um, home deeds, and kind of made those connections throughout the businesses and looked at it from more money laundering perspective. Um, Because again, those victims, it was very difficult for them to disclose against the trafficker. So um, that's our most common uh, scenario for labor trafficking that we find. Again, we do come across some migrant workers. We do have some persons that are working in restaurants or your service industries like hotels, but very rarely, more often than not, we're seeing a lot of those illicit massage businesses and illicit service industries.
0: So Lindsay, is the identification process for labor trafficking any different than it is for human
2: trafficking? What we have found is again, you know, human trafficking is often a hidden crime, and it takes really trained eyes to understand that human trafficking, on its face, is not always apparent. And so, a lot of the cases that we've received that have been referred to our local law enforcement or through our office have came in as child abuse, or have came in as a referral for some kind of neglect, as it refers to a teenage worker or an underage worker. And and these specifically have occurred in um, some retail businesses that we've had where children were. Um, being uh, trafficked uh, for their work. They were being uh, forced to work without pay. Some of these children were as young as age nine. Um, Some of the other situations that we've received came in through a complaint with a teenager working in local restaurant. And so it took a law enforcement officer really um, looking into that um, and going to the location and seeing, hey, there are persons here who are working, um, and it doesn't appear that they are... they have the proper papers. um, And there may be an issue where they are being held against their will due to their living conditions that some of them had disclosed. Um, And so law enforcement then made that referral to Homeland Security and they came in and took over that investigation. So um, a lot of times labor trafficking on its face is not going to be apparent. Um, People aren't going to come running into a police station and say, I'm working and they're not paying me correctly. Those typically those types of complaints would go through the different administrative agencies of the state. Um, If you have someone who is being held against their will and they're being forced to work, they're going to be a Afraid to come in and disclose. And we see that often on um, situations where agricultural workers are being held in really deplorable conditions. Um, and it takes trained law enforcement to respond to that um, assault call or respond to that domestic call to say, hey, you know, what's going on? What's up with your living conditions? Where do you work? What are you doing? How are you living here? To really take that step further and begin that labor investigation and, and to recognize that, hey, this is a form of human trafficking. It's not just people being kidnapped, um, it has many different faces.
0: So I'm not sure if you play a frontline role in this or not, because I know there are some outside governmental agencies that work with victims, but obviously at some point you have to interview them to get them ready for trial. What is that like? What is it like to sit down in the same room or across the table or side by side with a victim of someone who has been involved in labor trafficking?
2: So I think Mr. Thompson would agree with me in saying that Human trafficking victims are your most complex victim. They often suffer from trauma bonding. um, And like I just described, they have reasons to want to remain in that relationship with their trafficker. It could be that their um, visa or their work papers are being held. It could also be that um, they are drug addicts and they know that that person that is trafficking them is their next supply for their their next use. So it's very difficult. It takes a lot of patience um, on our end as prosecutors. It also requires some training. Just how I personally would see victims now based on how I was when I entered this profession 15 years ago is completely different. You have to understand where this person's coming from is not a person that a normal you or I could relate to. They're in a situation where they have been so mentally manipulated um, that they're gonna have trust issues. And so we're trained basically to come in, provide that victim with the bare necessities. One is, um, you know, make you feel safe. And our law enforcement does a fantastic job of working with service providers to do that, and to give them some kind of sense of predictability, and then include them in this prosecution. And we do that through our fantastic uh, legal assistants and victim advocates in our office. Dawn and Graldi is our victim advocate who reaches out to those victims and makes that initial contact and tries to help get them in connection with service providers. But it is overwhelming. It's very frustrating. Um, you know, you have caught the bad guy, and you can't get them to agree with you that they're a bad guy. That the person you're prosecuting is the one who's harming them. And so it takes patience. Statistics show us that it takes about six interactions for a victim in law enforcement, for they actually trust them and begin to identify as a human trafficking victim. So we have to keep that in mind as we proceed. And, and the way we've found to do it successfully is through engaging service providers to meet the needs that we as prosecutors aren't really qualified to fill to make sure that they have a safe place to go, that they have basic clothing. A lot of our victims come off the street with nothing, their trafficker takes everything. Everything they have, they're left with literally the clothes or, or lack of clothes on their back sometimes. So we work with service providers to provide that. Rape Crisis just did a fantastic job of providing emergency kits for those victims. So if law enforcement encounters someone on the street or we're interviewing someone in our office um, and we see that they need basic personal hygiene or things like that, we can provide that through Rape Crisis. Or so Rape Crisis provides it to them for us. So it is an overwhelming task, and I tell other prosecutors, please call us if you're getting frustrated with the victim. We'll try our best to help you and tell you. How hey, we've been there, but this is what it looks like on the other side. And and as Mr. Thompson said, when you have that victim who testifies and you see them gain that control and that power back over their trafficker, it's completely worth the hard work.
0: Well, there's one more specific case that I would like to ask you about. So I'm going to throw the name Applewhite out there. Hang on to that for just a moment, because you started talking about some of these multidisciplinary services, and I'd like to bring your boss, Billy West, back in here to address those. So Billy, if you would, before we get into the depths of the Applewhite case with Lindsay, I wanna talk a little bit more about some of the other agencies outside of your office, and maybe outside of law enforcement that you work with. So talk about the importance of multidisciplinary work and service provider involvement when it comes to human trafficking cases
1: yes it's very important i mentioned it earlier uh what we refer to as ngo which are non-governmental organizations they are no longer here in uh, Cumberland County, but several years ago, during the Applewhite trial, we had an organization called Five Sparrows that was part of the Dream Center. That was an NGO that specific purpose, a Five Sparrows specific purpose was to assist victims of human trafficking. And Lindsey and Rob can probably speak more to this than I can, but I know that during the Applewhite trial, they provided all kinds of victim services throughout the process to include helping find places like Airbnbs, for our victims to stay while they were testifying, because sometimes staying in a hotel can be a trigger for these victims, because that's where their victimization occurred. They were able to provide access to um, treatment for the drug addictions and alcohol addictions that many of them had, uh, to, to provide treatment and counseling for the trauma that they had been through, of course, and would go through as a result of having to relive this at trial. So they're very important in that respect, they're also very important when the cases happen initially. I think about the Child Advocacy Center, who can be another partner for us here in Cumberland County. When we have juveniles that are involved in human trafficking, we may need to do an interview that they're forensic interviewers that the Child Advocacy Center has that knows specifically and has specifically been trained how to interview children that have been through this type of trauma. So, you know, law enforcement is very important. Um, Prosecutors are very important, but you know we need our NGOs to to support these victims, to educate the public about human trafficking, uh, and to just they're part part of the solution in, in what we're trying to do. And also very important that they also uh, provide training and educate the public because a lot of times they're in a position to do that. We as law enforcement may not be able to. So great question and, and very very important, not only in specific cases the overall problem of human
0: Thanks, Billy. Lindsay, I want to bring you back in. We've heard this name, Applewhite, pop up a couple of times during this episode of our podcast. Walk us through that. Tell us what it was about.
2: Well, as I mentioned earlier, this was a three-week trial. So it's a case that Mr. Thompson and I both are very passionate about. We could spend hours talking and we could never do this case justice. Um, I like to say that everything that Rob did incorrectly in the Kirk case, we did correctly in Applewhite. And it really was um, a beautiful trial to watch because it was taking off our trial and errors and watching our, our system and our task force and our service providers, our local NGOs really work together and have a final product that showed the efforts of our labor. So basically in, in 2015, 16, uh, 2016, uh, the military base here, Fort Bragg, contacted local law enforcement and said, hey, we have a chick that showed up trying to get on post. Um, she's completely naked. Can you come out and investigate? And law enforcement went out, did an interview with the lady, got her clothing, got her some of emergency supplies, and she disclosed that she had been held in a basement of Mr. Robin Applewhite um, and that she had been trafficked by him. So I'll work backwards. Um, Upon that disclosure, um, law enforcement began interviewing persons. They went to the home, and sure enough, they were able to corroborate what this victim had disclosed, that there was a home, um, that the doors inside the home had locked from the outside in. Um, So it appeared that people had been locked in bedrooms. They located some other women that were living in that home, and that began our investigation. It went back three years. And during that investigation, law enforcement were able to identify dozens of women, uh, both adult and some juveniles, who have been trafficked by Mr. Applewhite. Um, And as I mentioned earlier, this was a case that showed what human trafficking looks like from the inside out. We proceeded on that case with about six different victims, a total of 46 charges, um, and we received conviction in 40 of those charges. Um, And we had multiple victims testify at trial, and each one of them testified about what their experience was, how they met Mr. Applewhite, how they began being controlled by him. And then some of them were how they got away from him. Actually, all of them eventually got away from him. And what Mr. Applewhite would do, his his operation was basically he would meet girls on a, a an online dating website, which is now defunct. Thank goodness. It was backpage.com. He would set up dates as if he were a purchaser of sex and he would go meet girls and he would say, wow, you're amazing. Why don't you come work on my team? And we heard that language a lot. Come work on my team. I'll take care of you. Um, You'll never need anything. I'll provide everything for you. And I'll also protect you and take care of you. And so a lot of the girls were recruited that way. Um, Some of the girls were recruited from local strip clubs, one of which testified at trial that she was a mother. She had two children. Um, She was working in a local club as a waitress, had no uh, had no experience in working in this type of lifestyle or living in this lifestyle. She received a back injury, became addicted to pain pills. And Mr. Applewhite began supplying her with those pain pills. And then he said, well, here, I've got something that can work a little better. And he gave her something and she had no idea what it was. And she tried heroin for the first time. And she described for the jury what that was like to become addicted to heroin upon one use. She said the moment that she took it, she had this eu- euphoria that removed her from her Current situation. And the moment she started coming down from the drug, she immediately needed more. She described for the jury what the withdrawals were like. And it was a great way to show the jury how people can get involved in this lifestyle. A lot of times people have that image in their mind that human trafficking is like the movie Taken, where kids are thrown in the back of a van and they're kidnapped and they're taken somewhere and sold. And that's not really what the face of it always looks like. A lot of times it's that mom who's addicted to drugs. A lot of times it's persons who are runaways. We had several of those victims testify that they had been in and out of the foster system. Um, They did not have a family support system at home, and he provided that for them. We also had a lot of testimony about supply and demand, and Mr. West mentioned that. A lot of people see Fayetteville, and they see a military base, and they think that we have this bad human trafficking problem, but but the testimony at the Applewhite trial showed us that Mr. Applewhite took the girls to where the demand was. So there was testimony about him driving them to Myrtle Beach um, during peak seasons there. He took them to Charlotte during the NCAA basketball tournament. He took them to Raleigh when he knew that there were going to be a lot of businessmen in town. He even drove them down to Orlando, Florida, when the demand um, here was a a little low and law enforcement began following him here and he had to get out of town for a little while. So it, it was just a fantastic trial to listen to the victims testify. Again, one of the girls really described what it was like to become addicted to heroin. And if you're not familiar with addiction, um, it was great to see how drugs can completely control someone and how he used that against them. A lot of the girls testified about how he manipulated them mentally. Um, he would tell them things like that they were worthless. They were prostitutes. Um, no one would ever believe them if he they tried to disclose against him. He took precautionary steps to always stay in a hotel adjacent to where the girls were working. Um, He would put them up in houses that were not where he resided. So it could keep a line of separation between he and the girls. Um, He controlled them by letting them go into withdrawal and saying, if you don't perform and commit this many sexual acts and bring me back this much money, I'm not going to give you any more heroin. And the girls described how they would have done anything just to have that next hit of heroin. Um, he also, a lot of the testimony were the girls of how physically abusive he was to them. And one of the girls specifically gave a very... Um very gut-wrenching testimony about how Mr. Applewhite had owed a prison debt to someone, someone he had been incarcerated with at one point in time. And when the gentleman got out of prison, Mr. Applewhite said, I'll pay that debt that I owe you. I'll allow you to to have this girl in exchange. And the victim testified at trial what a brutal rape she received from this gentleman who had just been released from prison and, and how she just wanted to die. Um, and it was very just gut-wrenching. And I think it showed the jury that clearly she was not, engaging in something because she wanted to she felt like she had no other option the girls also testified about um, what types of things he would say to separate them from their family, um, how to keep them under his control. He would manipulate them by saying, I know where your kids live. I know how to get to your family. And they stayed in this lifestyle longer than they, they wanted to because they had nowhere else to go. I gave the previous example also of, of some of the girls did try to escape. They did disclose the law enforcement. Those cases were dropped. Um, some were outside Cumberland County. One was, in particular was in a different city, and Mr. McCormick was even charged, but the victims were threatened. One of them was, in fact, basically kidnapped and kept from going to court to prosecute him, and so those cases were, were dismissed. So for years, this went on with Mr. Applewhite in this area, and he, there was testimony at trial that he was making so much money from these girls. One of the girls testified at trial that she was making about $2,000 an hour during some of the bigger weekends, and that she was making him approximately $40,000 a month. So this was a very lucrative business for Mr. Applewhite. You'll see that um, drug dealers often will deal drugs, but they've learned that you can sell drugs once, but you can sell a a female, you can sell her body multiple times and, and there's more return on that. And so um, he was making lucrative amounts of money, and the women were receiving nothing in exchange. So after a three-week trial, um, he was convicted. We did not receive a conviction on one of the victims who did not testify at trial. She was not in a position that she could testify. Um, she still not in a solid place in her life. Um, but otherwise, all the other victims that testified at trial, one of which actually had des- was deceased through an overdose. Um, the jury found him guilty. And he was a habitual felon, so he received a very significant sentence. Um, And as I mentioned earlier, this was the first case in North Carolina where we utilized the victim's restitution law. And the girls were awarded a $600,000 award of restitution uh, from Mr. Applewhite. And that's basically for their unpaid wages. They worked for him for several years. Um, We know how much money he was making off of them, and they were receiving nothing in return. So again, fantastic case, great learning experience um, for all of us. It was great to inform our jury as to what human trafficking looks like and to kind of get rid of some of those stigmas that we have with prostitution and and victims uh, and persons who are engaged in prostitution to To let them see that it's not always a willful act, and it really takes an open eye to look closely at the situation to 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 recognize human trafficking.
0: Well, as long as you've got the microphone warmed up, and we're kind of in the process of getting ready to wind things down, I think time and time again through the discussions with you and District Attorney West and ADA Thompson, the thing that I keep hearing is kind of a recurring theme is about identification how folks can readily or maybe even suspiciously identify human trafficking. So I want to ask you this one more question, Lindsay. What would you like to say or what can you share that could help not only law enforcement, but the general public out there identify human trafficking?
2: Sure. Well, there are warning signs that that everyone should kind of keep in mind as they're going about even your day-to-day business. We tell this to teachers, medical professionals, um, of course, law enforcement. There are warning signs to human trafficking, and and that looks differently uh, for adults and for children. Uh, What we're seeing most often right now for juveniles in our area um, is if you're sensing isolationism, if a child is wanting to be alone, locked alone in their room, they're engaged in social media, and they're excluding adults or persons or kids caregivers um, from knowing what's going on, that can be a red flag. Uh, We see this most often in children that are in vulnerable populations, like foster care. 99% of the cases that I have involving a juvenile, it began as a runaway status. And when we start that investigation, it, it comes to find out they're actually with a trafficker. Um, and they've met someone online and people ask that a lot. What are the, what websites? It is backpage.com. It was, um, now it's one backpage. Um, there are some other sex websites, but it's also things like Instagram and Snapchat or um, Kick, things that, Kids, uh, in their lack of maturity, think just disappear and that they're harmless, but they're not. These are what people are using to solicit these um, young adults, boys and girls alike. Um, they're using photographs of them to, um, to coerce them and to hold it over their head um, to say, hey, if you don't do what I've asked you to do, then I'm going to disclose these photographs to your, your parents or whomever it may be. So, look for things like isolationism. Look for those websites, those those um, social media platforms and make sure that that children know um hey, if if someone's ever trying to extort something from you, it's okay to tell an adult. Um for adults, it looks a little differently. It can be drug addiction. Um persons who are severely addicted to drugs, no matter what their class or their status is. We have found that at some point they will get so desperate that they'll begin um, dabbling in this type of lifestyle and they'll realize that it's dangerous and they'll look for some protection in someone. And before they know it, they're being trafficked. And we see that often. Um, And then we also tell our medical professionals to keep an eye out for persons that are coming in. Um, One thing that's really strange to me, but I've, I've I think makes sense is if persons are coming in and receiving medical care and they're asking for things like, hey, can you give me a sheet of paper that shows I don't have any sexually transmitted diseases or infection? That's usually a red flag that they're wanting that because they're going to advertise that and they're involved in the sex industry. Um, we've had medical professionals come to us and say, hey, you know, I noticed this girl was in. She was with a gentleman who... um was more um a lot older than her and he wasn't allowing her to answer questions. He was answering all the questions for her. Should I be alarmed? Yes. Um so things that look like they're controlling relationships, it can go beyond just domestic violence. Um it can be someone who's actually being manipulated um and that they are engaged in the sex industry and and maybe they want out, maybe they don't. But there are a lot of red flags if we just keep our eyes open, awareness is key to us intervening and and, and getting somebody the help that they need.
0: Well, again, You do a great job of illustrating what that looks like for law enforcement. And I I think especially that law enforcement needs to be acutely aware that a routine call for service maybe something a little bit bigger. And sometimes it pays to kind of stay and, and look and do what you can while you're there to try and maybe uncover something a little bit better. And, and certainly we don't want to give the impression that every domestic-related call or every suspicious drug activity may lead to human trafficking, but certainly just be more aware and and be more conscious of the surroundings of, of what you see. And, and I think you did a, a great illustration earlier of saying some things are hidden in plain sight, and I think that's what law enforcement needs to be acutely aware of. Well, as we wind things down, I want to come back to Cumberland County District Attorney Billy West, who is a sitting member of the North Carolina Human Trafficking Commission, and Billy, I'll be the first one to admit when this subject first came up that we were going to put this on the North Carolina Justice Academy podcast series. I honestly did not know that the Human Trafficking Commission existed, but thanks to your Executive Director Christine Long and some folks that you sit that commission with like mark nichols and so many others i have learned a great deal so if you would let's kind of bring things to a close and talk about the human trafficking commission your role and the and the role of the commission in general
1: yes thank you kirk the commission was created by statute uh, by the general assembly in 2013 and we've done a lot of good work since and trying to get a lot of awareness about human trafficking but just kind of summarize We do things like examining human trafficking in the state, funding and facilitating research about human trafficking, uh, creating measurement devices uh, to see how we're doing and how we stack up against other states. And we actually do really well uh, when when being measured against um, other states in our efforts. Um, We do suggest new policies, procedures, and more specifically legislation uh, that we urge and lobby the General Assembly to adopt. Uh, that we think is needed related to human trafficking and we also very importantly we do uh, education and training for our law enforcement for our social services uh, for our non-government organizations and the general public and we encourage the development of regional task force like the one we have in Cumberland County and then of course we try to identify uh, any gaps Uh, in law enforcement uh, or service providers uh, that we see in in areas. So uh, the commission is doing very, very uh, good work, and and we appreciate um, the members of the commission. We appreciate uh, Ms. Christine Long and many others that that are working uh, in this area. And thank you for the opportunity, particularly here in Human Trafficking Awareness Month uh, in January, to get out the word uh, about human trafficking, the problem it is in
0: North Carolina, and what we're going to do to stop it. January is Human Trafficking Awareness Month throughout the United States. On this episode of NCJA 1014, you've heard that it's not an isolated problem in some geographic areas of our country, but is unfortunately active here in North Carolina. For law enforcement officers, please continue to educate yourselves and maintain a heightened awareness on calls for service where human trafficking could be occurring. For others, please know that you are always the eyes and ears needed by law enforcement. If you see suspicious activity that could even be remotely related to human trafficking, please don't hesitate to contact the law enforcement agency that serves your area or the National Human Trafficking Hotline. Additional resources are available on the North Carolina Human Trafficking Commission website, as well as in the show notes that accompany this podcast. The North Carolina Justice Academy is committed to helping in the fight against human trafficking and takes great pride in serving as a conduit to present this valuable information. Once again, very special thanks to our panel of experts for this episode. Cumberland County District Attorney Billy West and Assistant DAs Lindsey Lane and Rob Thompson, also from Cumberland County. And until our next NCJA 1014 podcast, please stay safe.